Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is uh, Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Mr. John Judas. Mr. Judas is a writer of many books on contemporary American history and politics. He has been associated uh, in the past with the New Republic as a senior editor. And today we are speaking about his newest book, the Nationalist Revival, Trade, Immigration, and the Revolt Against Globalization. Welcome, uh, John Judas. Hi. John, what is the primary thesis of your book? Well, I suppose it's that um, we should take um, nationalism seriously and not look at, at it simply in its most toxic form as something that um, caused uh, centuries of war culminating in uh, World War II but as uh, a basic component of um, democracy, of advanced welfare societies, of something that um, uh, can be shaped either from the right, the left, or the center. For instance, you you really uh, can't have a functioning democracy unless um, I, I am willing myself uh, to... Uh, allocate to you who I don't know, I mean, you just called me up, uh, equal power over um, deciding who the American president is. Uh, Or if I'm not willing to uh, spend my tax money to support somebody who is disabled in, uh, let's say, in Reno, Nevada, that the government is going to subsidize, whom I don't know at all. The only thing I know about this person is that they're also an American. Now, if I think that the government is doing, if we get to a situation where people think that um, the government is supporting people who aren't really Americans, who aren't part of the, or the people are voting who aren't Americans, then we have a situation uh, uh, where the government uh, itself doesn't, it becomes dysfunctional. And, you know, you get this in, you have a version of this in Spain, where uh, part of the country wants to uh, uh, secede, where they don't see themselves as belonging to uh, the same uh, uh, nation. And uh, so, so in that sense, the uh, na- uh, uh, national identity is very important for the most basic functions of, uh, uh, of our country and of other countries. Uh, and the, the question is beyond that, what, what do we do with it and how do we shape it? But if we simply deny it and say, well, you, you know, I don't care. I'm not really an American or I'm not really, uh, German or whatever. Uh, then we get into a, then we get into real political problems. You have an interesting quote, which, um, obviously you don't really agree with on page 14 from the New York Times. I presume where, in essence, the argument is that national identity is not an objective uh, state, but a subjective one. 
and therefore we don't really have to take it very seriously. I suppose you could say it's a bastardization of the Benedict uh, Anderson uh, thesis. Why did you include that? Well, I just included it, uh, you know, the standard format for uh, writing an article or a book is that uh, most people uh, believe X, but in fact Y is the case. And uh, then you go on and you say why it is what why why is true and not X. So you know it's just a it's just a, a stalking horse for trying to say that uh, national identity is something that is that is essential to us and that can't just be wished away as let's say as a myth, which was I think was the term that the uh, New York Times used. It's somewhere between let's say you know, uh, belong to a family where you really can't, you you know, you can disown your children and things like that, but there is a biological connection. And, you know, at the very other extreme, when you, uh, like I'm from Chicago and I root for the Chicago Cubs. Now, you know, if I get mad at the owner and stuff, I can stop rooting for them. That's at a very other extreme. The nation is closer to family. It's not quite, it's not quite there. Of course, you can emigrate, you can belong to another nation, but it's an important part of us. And uh, a lot of people don't even realize it until, uh, let's say, the, uh, you know, planes go into the Twin Towers on 9-11, and suddenly they feel that they have to defend their country. Or, um, you know, when you go overseas, um, and I'm sure a lot of people have this experience, and people start running down your country, even though you you there's a lot of things that you disagree with about it. Suddenly, become very defensive, and become defensive because of this sense of nationality is something that you grew up with. It's not you know it's not genetic, but it's something you're that's part of your uh, childhood uh, education, and and uh, it's important. Isn't the real problem with the sort of uh, Habermasian, post-Enlightenment, post-nationalist, humanist patriotism or citizenship is that no one, or almost no one, will sacrifice for it and uh, at bottom, uh, if need be, die for it? The thing is that, that ethics and morals have to be founded upon a, uh, a viable sense of, of what human beings historically will put up with. And uh, if you build a politics uh, on the basis of the idea that an American should care as much what's happening to somebody in, let's say, Uruguay as they care about somebody in uh, happening in some in uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, it's not going to work out. Um, you know, that's Americans have always been skeptical about foreign aid. Uh, and, uh, I, I think that there, that, that might be an extreme example, but I think what you started to see in the, especially, uh, in the, in the 90s after the end of the Cold War, uh, was a kind of utopian vision. You had that in Europe with the idea that people could, become Europeans as opposed to Germans or Danes or, or what ha- what have you and it, ha- it hasn't really worked out that way it's made to it's made demands on people that are unrealistic it may be in you know in 200 years uh, all that stuff will make sense and because of course it wasn't that important uh, 
500 or 600 years ago to be part of, um, you know, a Hungarian or whatever. Uh, that it, it is, in that sense, a more a modern uh, priority for us being part of a nation. But but I'm just saying that that right now we're not at a point where being being a global citizen and putting global concerns above national concerns is is a realistic basis for make for a politics. What do you mean by quote nationalism as an explicit ideology unquote? Well, the uh, you get uh, at certain points in history uh, a politics that's very much based. Not just on uh, we're all Americans and we have to take care of each other, but that uh, we have a, a very explicit adversary that's trying to destroy us and undermine us. And the politics becomes based upon and centered around this idea of there's us and then there's them, and we got to somehow get rid of them or, or defeat them. And them can be a uh, another country. Uh, you know, historically, the, the French or the Germans, or, you know, to use the other example from, from that history, it can be an internal uh, uh, enemy, the Jews, or it can be, uh, you know, illegal immigrants, uh, what have you. But it, it, it's a, again, it's a politics based very much not on a kind of um, implicit assumption that things have to be in the national interest, but on the idea that there is a force out there or inside that's trying to subvert the nation and that we have to bind together against it. Do you agree with David Goodhart that it's perfectly legitimate to be concerned by changes in state and society as a result of heavy immigration? Well, it's not... uh is it legitimate the right term it, it happens it's you know it's part of us uh we we grow up uh in certain kinds of neighborhoods and cultures it means more for some people than others um i i, I wrote this about in recently i wrote an essay on the election in 2016 uh 2018 um drawing upon David Goodhart's analysis of Britain and, and the idea that for many of the people who backed uh, Trump, let's say, in 2016, they were people who over the last uh, 30, 40 years had a lot, a lot of elements of their identity stripped away. Uh, neighbor, neighborhoods, uh, bars, local churches, what have you. And uh, for whom it, it, the nation became very important in national identity and the flag. And it's not it's not that it's not important uh, for somebody like me who lives in the you know suburbs of a very fancy place and has all kinds of different sources of uh, identity and immortality, including my the books uh, that, that I write. But that it's more, more important and and. Uh, again, for somebody who, let's say, lives in Muncie, Indiana, it's going to be more upsetting if suddenly all the the old neighborhood becomes uh, signs in Spanish. Let's say, so it's not a. I mean, again, it's not a. It's not a question of whether it's legitimate. It is part of our our. Uh, uh, of what happens uh, politically in in countries, and uh, we, we have to deal with it somewhere. And we can't say, well, these people shouldn't feel this way. Uh, they do, and and you know, how are we going to accommodate them? How are we going to reconcile these different uh, 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 par- parts of the country? And what 
what you get a lot, let's say, with the immigration is um, what uh, Rehan Salam uh, in his new book on immigration calls the backlash paradox, where where people go from saying uh, from saying, yeah, yeah, it's very bad to resent these uh, people because they have different languages, et cetera, say, to, to the other extreme saying, yes, and we should, in fact, we should just forget about these concerns and let everybody, you know, have open borders. Uh, 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 the more the merrier and not worry about having uh, so many illegal immigrants in the country. And that's not a, again, that's not a viable politically, p- political position. And it doesn't do justice to the kind of concerns that uh, m- many people have. Is it at all possible, as you seem to imply in the book, that there could be a political modus vivendi between a Trumpian or neo-Trumpian view of immigration and say a New York Times view of immigration in the case of the latter, that people have a human right to move or migrate to any place in the world that they so wish. Oh, uh, the, what, what you describe as the New York Times view? Well, uh, well I'm, I'm using New York I don't Times know if as that's a, a... I don't know if that's an ac- accurate. I mean, the people who have that view more are, are like maybe the Wall Street Journal editorial page, the Cato Institute, and some some people on the on the uh, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, Vox, that pub, kind of neoliberal publication from Washington. Uh, so it's not a. I'm not sure if the New York Times has that that extreme of view, but it you know it hasn't worked. It clearly hasn't worked in the uh, European Union. Uh, that's why you have rise of the populist right in the last uh, uh, 20, 30 years. So um, uh, uh, it completely open borders. No, I don't think that that's a viable position. But, uh, uh, but is there a political? Yeah, we we, sh- we need to have some immigration in America, obviously, and, and other countries like, like Japan, it's a, it's an urgent uh, priority right now because uh, they have shr- shrinking, shrinking and aging populations. But is there a political uh, solution which will amalgamate both positions in an acceptable fashion that uh, we can pass laws and then move on after that? Uh, right now, there isn't, um, and I just use the you know the example of the United States. Um, the mo- most basic conflict is again is o- over uh, uh, border regulation and the the illegal immigrants within the country. And uh, you know, I I believe that we have to have some kind of a path to citizenship for the people who have come here. The estimates go from now that you see seven or eight million, but I've also there's also an estimate of 22 million uh, who are a kind of unassimilated underclass and very easily exploited. Uh, so that's that's one thing to do, and the other, but the other thing to do is some uh, then some kind of very strict enforcement of our laws. So that uh, an employer who hires somebody has to verify that they're in the country illegally. But if you have, if you ha- if you have that kind of enforcement, and then you don't do anything about giving people a path to citizenship, uh, what you'll do is really drive people underground. And and I think that that's a that's a very bad thing to do. But but the parties. Uh, 
the attempt to to pass legislation that would reconcile those two uh, has has failed. Uh, 2007, 2013, um, and you know it's part. Partly because the Democrats uh, don't really aren't really serious about the enforcement or his business, and the uh, Republicans are afraid that uh, if um, we have more, uh, let's say, Hispanics uh, in America who can vote, uh, they'll vote the Democrat. Now, I'm not saying that those are realistic fears necessarily, but but those that's what that's been causing this kind of uh, irreconcilable conflict. I think in some time in the next, you know, decade or so, if you get a, if you, you get a cessation of the kind of terrorist attacks, like the one we had in Strasbourg uh, yesterday, uh, it may be possible to make some kind of a, a reasonable compromise. Cause I, cause one of the things too that makes immigration such a to- toxic issue is the fusion of that with uh, the fear of terrorism. Um, which re- really makes people not want to have, let anybody in the country or let anybody of a certain kind in the country. So, and pres- but, you know, every time you think that, that we've reached a new point and ISIS is gone and whatever, you get something like happened yesterday. Can um, President Trump be characterized as a sincere American nationalist? Oh, he, you know, P, his, historians are going to write books about this guy for, uh, uh, you know, a, if there's still a, a, a universities in 30 or 40 years. I mean, it's going to become a cottage industry. Uh, who, who knows? I think that there's, I think what, what uh, Trump really cares about looking at his, just at his biography, are uh, the uh, trade issues and the made in U- the USA issues. Uh, the immigration stuff, he was, you know, when when he ran for, uh, he was going to run for Reform Party candidate in 2000, and he denounced uh, uh, Pat Buchanan as a nativist. So I I, I think uh, some of that stuff is, uh, is just uh, political opportunism and uh, playing to his base. But, but whether he believes it or not, uh, Again, again, that's that's going to be it's going to be a rich subject uh, for people to uh, to speculate on. How does the situation in Europe, especially in Western Europe, differ from that of the United States in terms of the debate about immigration, immigration, migration, and nationalism? Well, well, it's it's probably different in that it's in in a few ways. Some of the countries in uh, Western Europe. Are uh, you know really very very prosperous, low low unemployment, and uh, the the um, uh, emphasis really is on the culture and terror. I'd say that's true of a country like Denmark, where the the uh, their version of the People's Party, the Folk Party, the Danish Folk Party. Um, Really isn't so much concerned with economics as it is with uh, with culture and uh, and violence. Uh, so uh, that on the one hand, and then I think you know if you go over to France, there's more. There's a combination of the two: the combination of economics and culture. But Europe has had more um, more terrorist incidents in the last ten years or so. 
uh, than the United States. I mean, we had two big ones in, in during the 2016 election in San Bernardino and Orlando that made a lot of difference. Uh, but uh, I, I have a feeling it's not um, it's, it's not as important an issue uh, right now in the United States as it is uh, in some of the countries in uh, in Europe. And uh, again, it might, might change there if you see a, a redu- reduction of the terrorist threat. I mean, just to use the current example, uh, the the uh, the immigration and illegal immigration is sort of like um, it's this kind of issue that's very similar to uh, universal health care. Just it just depends um, on who is making the case. Now, I think Trump benefited in 2016 uh, from uh, the uh, fear of terrorism and from his various promises to build a wall. I think that a lot of people didn't take that stuff seriously, but but the people who did uh, flocked to the polls, even if they were Democrats and vote, voted uh, for Trump. Now he's in the position where sort of the shoe is on the other foot, and, and he's uh, making these demands, let's say, for his wall, and he's going to shut down the government if... Uh, uh, the Congress doesn't vote five billion dollars for the wall. I think that the issue is going to is actually going to play against him. I don't think that there is uh, uh, sufficient support for doing something like that. So it's it, it just depends. Uh, and uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is that in the United States, I don't think it's it's as central as an issue as it has been in some of the European countries. You seem not to be entirely negative about President Trump's trade policies. Why is that? Well, because uh, I, I think that the uh, ch- the the um, trade policies of the Democrats and Republicans beginning in the 1990s, uh, the idea that we could have a World Trade Organization and let China in and that, that they would eventually become uh, just like us, uh, uh, liberal democratic uh, countries that would, uh, you know, play by the same rules have, have not worked. And uh, Trump is the, probably the first uh, president to really uh, call them on this. Um, I, I have some misgivings about how he's going about it, but uh, I don't have misgivings about the idea that it, that there is a problem of uh, uh, cyber theft technology transfer, uh, uh, blocking our uh, exports there uh, while we don't block theirs here. Uh, you know, in other words, an, an imbalance. And that uh, we had, we didn't suffer as a country from that uh, over the last 15 years or so. Um, estimates of, you know, between two and four million uh, jobs lost, uh, many of whom uh, come out of those countries, uh, out of those states. Uh, in the in the middle America and in the South that uh, supported Trump in 2016. Uh, how does the potential for artificial intelligence, with uh, some economists predicting 20, 30 years hence that uh, a considerable number of uh, low-income employment, uh, manual employment that many uh, first-generation immigrants tend to take up um, will, in fact, disappear. How will that state of affairs 
uh, affect um, migration or immigration, legal or Ill- Ill- illegal, as a whole? Oh, you know, this is like one of those questions about space travel or something. I don't, you know, it's uh, the the economists who do those kind of studies. Uh, what they mostly emphasize is that the um, that automation has destroyed the mid wage jobs, uh, jobs where um, where uh, let's say somebody worked in a factory and did uh, primarily manual uh, labor. But was uh, was sustained by a union, let's say, on an automobile assembly line. Uh, it it hasn't yet destroyed jobs. Let's say home health care aides that uh, involve per- personal uh, contact, but they're also very low wage, and are uh, a lot a lot of uh, the people who who work in those jobs are uh, immigrants. So it, it's going to you know the. I, I don't want to speak. I'm not an expert on this subject, so you know, uh, it's. Uh, I'll just talk generally about automation, which I have thought about, rather than specifically about uh, artificial intelligence or you know driverless cars. I, I think it's going to affect the economy ac- across the board. But we've shown a capacity in the past. Uh, for uh, inventing whole new areas of, uh, of work. And in America, there are like hundreds of thousands of yoga instructors now. And don't, don't uh, go look at the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's, it's actually true. Uh, so th- there is a whole dimension of personal work, of service work, uh, that will uh, that that I think will grow as a result of of, of uh, automation. Uh, how how that will affect the politics of immigration? You know, again, we're talking about something that, that uh, where there's so many different factors involved that I can't really give you a good answer. And what about um, un- um, universal basic income? Um, how would that affect? I suppose if this, the supposition of that type of policy is that if you're a citizen, uh, you have a right to have a minimum income, wouldn't that put a certain uh, stress on uh, uh, birthright citizenship? Because otherwise you could have potentially millions of people who would migrate to country X purely for the... A right to claim this particular income, which may be, if you're talking about migrating from a third world country to a first world country, 10 or 15 times uh, greater income that they could ever potentially hope for in their country of birth. You, you listen. You've stated the case perfectly. I, I don't need to comment. Okay. You're correct. Yes, it's a problem. And uh, in the United States, it's a political problem because uh, we we believe in the Protestant ethics. Uh, we were we we grew up as a country with it, and with the idea that people should uh, work for a living. So, I'm uh, I'm not a big uh, fan of that kind of politics. I think it can work in other countries, but I think that that it, we have a long way to go in in the United States uh, in convincing people that we should have a program. Uh, that that does that. I mean, it can come across the transom in, disguised in other ways, uh, uh, in terms of, of providing all kinds of basic services that we need, like health care. Uh, but 
uh, just a straight uh, universal basic income. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure we're going to we're going to get that. In your conclusion, you differentiate between globalism and internationalism. Uh, what is the difference? Oh, you know, I just uh, you authors have to make something up to to uh, make a point. Uh, I, I I think the difference is that sometimes when you hear um, people attack globalization or globalism, what they mean really is letting um, corporations, multinational corporations, have uh, free reign, and that if we do that sort of on the model of how Adam Smith used to think of national economies, uh, everybody in the end will come out uh, for the better. And um, that that idea is, is not a good idea. On the other hand, uh, there are a lot of problems in the world, um, you know, pandemics, uh, nuclear proliferation, uh, climate change, that you can only address uh, internationally through some kind of agreements with other countries that by their nature are going to cede some degree of sovereignty uh, to an agreement, to a treaty, to an organization. And that's that's what I would identify as internationalism. And I think that that's a, a, a should be an important part of uh, what, what America does. And it's in our national interest to uh, pursue internationalism in that sense. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know that I'm a great uh, genius and will live forever. I don't. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't. Uh, I, I don't have that kind of. I don't have a good answer to that question. Well, um, regardless of that, I think people will take away from your book um, that you've offered up for discussion and debate a useful view of um, American nationalism, nationalism in Europe, and how that intersects with the current, I wouldn't say crises, but certainly um, major public debate about uh, issues related to migration, immigration, and uh, political identity and citizenship. So with that... Yeah, you've done it. You said it better than me. I, you know, <laughs> so thank you very much. So with that being said, I would like to thank you very much, John, uh, for being so kind to speak with us today. Uh, this is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, John. Sure. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.